0: So it's Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. For a sermon I've entitled Ananias and Saul. Follow along as I read. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street, which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judah for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him. So that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I must show him how much he must suffer for my uh, namesake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to see the movie Sound of Freedom. If you have not seen it yet, I would encourage you to do so. The movie is well done, It's gripping, and of course, it's heart-wrenching. The film is based on the true life story of Tim Ballard, who was an underground agent for the Department of Homeland Security who rescued kids who were caught up in sex trafficking. Well, after retiring from government work, he went on to start an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, which uh, furthered that effort. Now, when the movie was over and the credits started to roll, I stood up and thought about walking out, which I would do normally, but then I noticed there was a message that said, wait three minutes uh, for a message from Jim Caviezel, the main star. Well, I wanted to hear that, so I waited, and as I did, I watched the credits roll by. They listed the actors, the director, the producer, the unit production manager, the sound designer, the music supervisors, the stunt coordinator, and the key grip. What's a key grip? I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Well, a key grip is the one who's ahead of the grip crew. <laughs> What's a grip crew? Well, those are the people who set up and control the, the cameras during the production of the television series. Well, these people uh, are not to be confused, though, with gaffers. They're the ones who do the lights. But I was, I was thinking as the credit was rolling on, I thought, why do they even run these? I mean, other than the stars, nobody knows any of their names, and no one really cares who these people are or what part they played in the movie. I mean, I get it that those involved appreciate their names being listed. My wife's younger sister was a costumer for Disney, and uh, her name was listed on the credits for a television program that ran for a couple of years on the Disney Channel. But other than family members and friends, did anyone see the name Maria Vetch? And if they did, did they say, Good job, Maria? So why do they run those credits? Well, I think it's because the producers of the movie understand the work that goes into the production. And they want to give credit where credit is due. Well, when you read through the Bible, you find that there's some big stars, central characters, who take up a number of pages. Think about Abraham, or Moses, or David, or Jeremiah. But who remembers those lesser characters who played supporting roles to these men? I mean, we remember Joshua, Moses' assistant, but who recalls Caleb, a man who was another great supporter of Moses. Everybody knows about David, but how many are familiar with Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's son? When God took the kingdom away from Saul, he also was taking it away from Jonathan, who was the heir. And yet Jonathan told David that he was good with the choice and that he would be there to support him. Jeremiah the prophet was thrown in a muddy cistern, but who remembers who got him out? It was an Ethiopian man named Ebed-Melech who intervened with the king and then hoisted Jeremiah out of the mud. One more name. Naaman the Syrian. He was healed of his leprosy by Elisha. But who convinced this foreigner to go to the land of Israel to seek help from the prophet? It was a young Israelite girl who had been taken captive in war and came to be a slave in the household of Naaman. She was concerned for her master and told his wife, he said, oh, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he'd cure him of his leprosy. God used an unnamed teenage girl not only to heal Naaman, but ultimately to save him. Well, here today we have another story of an unsung hero. No doubt the Apostle Paul was the most important person in the Bible other than the Lord Jesus himself. Paul was a big star. But Ananias, he was a minor actor, but one who played a pivotal role in bringing Saul of Tarsus to the big screen. So today, to help you see how Ananias played a small but important role in God's big plan, And how we can do the same, we want to look at this story. So don't we pray and get into the text. Father, God? I do pray for grace and mercy. Here's another man who is shining in the shadow, and I pray that we would see that and be uh, imitators of him so that we can be pleasing to you. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, what do we see in this text that speaks of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, first thing we want to consider is the man, that is Ananias himself. So your first point is the man, and that's verse 10. Secondly, the message which God gave him, that's 10 to 14, Third, the mission that would be given to Saul, that's in 15 and 16. And finally, the meeting that took place between the two, and that's 17 to 19. So the man, the message, the mission, and the meeting. Now keep in mind where we are in the text from last week. Saul of Tarsus, the man who became the Apostle Paul, was heading for Damascus, looking to ferret out and round up the followers of Jesus. Jesus. In the mind, his mind, those Christians were a dangerous, deluded sect of wayward Jews who believed that their leader, Jesus of Nazareth, was not only the Messiah, but the incarnate Son of God. By worshiping Jesus as such, in his mind, they were guilty of idolatry, and Jesus himself, who made those claims, was a blasphemer who deserved to be crucified. So Saul was absolutely convinced that he was doing God's will in hunting down these heretical Jewish followers of the Nazarene who were spreading their poisonous teaching everywhere. But on the way, Saul encountered the risen Christ. And when he did, his entire worldview and understanding of Judaism imploded. Have you ever seen them implode a building? Not explode, but implode. The charges go off and the whole building collapses in on itself so that there's nothing but dust in the air and rubble on the ground. Well, that's what happened in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union because of the failure of communism. Anticipating the collapse would come, Alexander Solzhenitsyn edited a book about what he hoped would rise out of it, entitled From Under the Rubble. When the Japanese surrendered after the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the people were not only left defeated, but discombobulated. I mean, our armies have been defeated, the empire's been destroyed, and the emperor himself is announcing the surrender of Japan. At one point in his speech, Emperor Hirohito said this, should we continue to fight not only would it result in the ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but it would also lead to the total extinction of human civilization. I've got a book at home in my library that deals with the social and psychological upheaval that came to Japan in the years immediately following the war. It was entitled Embracing Defeat. Well, sitting in the darkness for three days in Damascus, after his worldview had imploded, Paul had nothing to do but think and think about how wrong he was about Jesus and about the Christians and about his own understanding of religion and what it meant to be a good Jew. His previous understanding and approach to religion had left him a smoldering ruins from under the rubble after embracing his defeat. He would rise to become the greatest proponent of the faith that he once despised. And a man named Ananias was going to play a pivotal role in that transformation. That brings us to our first point, the man. It's verse 10. I mean, what do we know about this man, Ananias. Actually, very little. Really, only about three things. First of all, we know that he was a disciple. Now, when you hear the word disciple, you probably, first of all, think of the 12 apostles. All the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. The term disciple simply means a learner, a student, or a follower. In that sense, every Christian is a disciple. We're followers of Christ, students of the word, constantly trying to learn how to live lives pleasing to God. Second thing we know is that he was from Damascus. <clears throat> that, was still the, uh, that was and still is the capital of Syria. Did you know that it's the oldest continually inhabited uh, city in the world? Now, it's possible that Ananias was a transplant there, a recent one, because of the persecution that took par- par- place in Jerusalem. It also could be the case that he moved there uh, years earlier. He may have even been raised there. There was a fairly large Jewish community in Damascus. Third thing we know about him is he was a devout man. Later, Paul, when he retells this conversion story of his in Acts 22, says of Ananias that he was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. You see, the early Christians still attended the synagogues. The final breach with Judaism had still not occurred. Just as a side note, though, you know, we're told that Ananias had a good reputation. Proverbs 22, 1-2 says this, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor more than gold or silver. First Peter 2.12 says this, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of their visitation. You should have a good reputation at your job for being a hard worker, for being productive, for getting along with your coworkers. You should live in such a way that when people see you, they smile, they don't grimace. I mean, it's one thing if they despise you because you're a Christian. It's something else if they don't like you because you're a jerk. It's not just enough to share your faith. You have to live out your faith so people can see that there's something different about you. Writing to the Thessalonian Christians, Paul urged them to excel still more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. So Ananias was not flashy, but he knew how to shine brightly and consistently so that others noticed that there was something different and special about him. That brings us to our second point, though, the message. This is in 10 to 14. It says, now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. By the way, do you remember when God called Samuel when he was just a young boy He was sleeping in the night? Samuel thought it was Eli the priest calling him. So he got up and he said, here I am, you called me. I didn't call you, go back to sleep. After a third time of that happening, Samuel woke up Eli, and Eli realized what was going on. So he told him, he said, the next time you hear the voice, say to him, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God was not only calling a prophet, but he was at that time giving his first message that he was deliver, which was to Eli, his foster father, to tell him that destruction was going to come upon his household. You know, those called by God, to give his message, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, or pastors today are responsible to deliver the message of God, whether it's pleasing to people or not, whether people are glad to hear it or hate you for bringing it. Well, the message that Ananias was to bring was one that was startling and unsettling. Look what it says. It says, And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for a man from uh, Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now the rock band uh, Foreigner sang a song called Double Vision. Well, here the Lord employs a double vision to facilitate this meeting. Ananias receives a a vision telling him to go and Saul receives a a, a vision telling him that someone was coming. Both are prepared for this pivotal history-changing meeting. But I want you to notice something. The evidence that Paul was already converted here was the fact that he was praying. Now, I am sure Paul had prayed many times before this, wrote, written out prayers that he had memorized, but this is the first time he's calling out to the Lord from his heart. So, Ananias is thinking, okay, okay, let me jot this down so I get it right. Go to Straight Street, yep, yep, and, and, and stop at the house of Judas. I think that's the guy who lives by the bakery, and I'm to look for a man named Tars- uh, from Tarsus, whose name is Saul's. Whoa, 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 whoa. Saul of Tarsus? You don't mean that Saul of Tarsus, do you? Verse 3. But Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now I was trying to think of some kind of parallel that we might understand on the emotional impact. On Ananias, when he heard that he was to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. Tony, I want you to go down to Fisherman's Wharf at midnight. Go into the third warehouse. Walk by two big, scary Italian goons named Vito and Louis. Go up the stairs to the top office. There you'll find a mob boss named Frank Three Fingers Capola. Tell him the Lord's making you an offer you cannot refuse. Or, Luke, go to the Galactic Empire. There you'll find a man dressed all in black with a lightsaber in his hand. He's wearing an odd-looking helmet, and when he speaks, he's going to sound a lot like James Earl Jones with a bad cold. But Lord, I've heard of this Darth Vader and all that he's done to your people and how he's gone over to the dark side. We see the Lord's reply to Ananias' subjection in the next verse where he lays out the mission. This is for 15 to 16. By the way, they just released Mission Impossible number 7. Mission Impossible, Dead of Reckoning, Part 1. What does that tell you? <laughs> they're going to keep cranking these movies out as long as they're making, movie, or making money on them. But think about it. If they're really Mission Impossible, how do they do them? Well, the mission that God had given or laid out for Saul was indeed an impossible one, other than the fact that he was, it was ordained by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. For his mission was to bring the gospel to the whole Roman Empire. Specifically, the Lord says in verse 15, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and to bring our kings and sons of Israel. The Greek uh, word translated instrument here means vessel, like a container. North Korea has developed nuclear weapons as a result of a Pakistani uh, scientist selling them secrets in 2002. What they've been working on for the last 20 years, they've evidently now developed which was uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles that are able to reach the United States. I mean, it's not just enough that your bomb goes boom. You need a vessel that you can deliver it in so it'll explode where you want. Well, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But for that gospel to have its explosive effect, there has to be a delivery system. And the Lord told Ananias that Paul was that delivery system a chosen instrument of mine. You see, Paul, more than any other man, was used by God to bear Christ's name to the Gentiles. And he would stand before governors and high officials and kings. Felix, Festus, Herod, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, ultimately before the emperor Nero, to bear witness to the truth and try to convince them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, every time... uh, year Time Magazine does their man or person of the year. A while back, they decided to do a list of the 100 most influential people of history. Now, not surprising, Jesus was number one on the list, followed by, in order, Napoleon, Muhammad, William Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. Do you know that the Apostle Paul only made it on the list in the spot of 34? That's ludicrous. If Jesus is ranked first, and rightly so, then the apostle Paul would have to be second. For if Christianity has had a greater impact on world history than any other religion or philosophy, then Saul of Tarsus, Paul, who did more to spread that religion than any other, would have to be number two. By the way, Paul was preeminently an apostle to the Gentiles. Nevertheless, we're told here that he would bear witness to the sons of Israel. Writing about the burden he felt in his own soul for the salvation of his countrymen, he said this in Romans 9, 1-3, he said, I'm telling you the truth, in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish myself to be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see, Paul's task would have been difficult enough if Christ had sent him to people who were eager to hear and receptive to the message, but Instead, he was sending them to people who lived in self-imposed darkness, hating the truth and hating the God of the truth. Jesus put it this way. This is the judgment, that light comes into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil, John 3, 19. And so even though he would be bringing good news, great news, the best news, that God's Son had been sacrificed for sins so that whoever believes in him receives forgiveness and reconciliation with God as a free gift, unless and until God opens up a person's mind and causes them to be born again so that they believe, they will reject the message and at times they will persecute the messenger. And that's why the Lord said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now Saul, the persecutor of the church, caused many to suffer for Christ's name's sake. Paul, the proclaimer of the truth, would suffer much, very much, as he fulfilled his mission. Now listen to his own testimony years later about some of the things that he had gone through and how God made good on this promise of his future suffering. Comparing himself to false brothers who boasted about their accomplishments. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 to 28. He said, Are they servants of Christ? I talk as if insane. In other words, just bragging. He said, I'm more so. In far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. He'd been beaten so many times he didn't even remember. Oh yeah, that's right, I was beaten in that city too. Often in danger. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, meaning whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger, danger, Will Robbins. Danger at sea, danger with the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many Sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Apart from all the external things, I have the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. Who's weak without me being weak? Who's led into sin with all my intense concern? Now, some Christians, quite honestly, are put off by just a little inconvenience. Pope's just trying to hang on for dear life. Am I a soldier of the cross? A fowler of the lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? The Lord was telling Ananias that this man Saul of Tarsus, God's chosen instrument, was going to sail through a number of bloody seas. And you know what, folks? We may as well. There's a growing antagonism towards Christianity and Christians in this country. The sufferings that our brothers and sisters in Christ endure around the world is eventually going to come to us as well. Well, that all lay on the future for Saul. At this point, he's just sitting in the dark waiting for a man named Ananias to come to speak to him. Now, let's stop and think for a minute. What if Ananias had said, you know, I would like to help out, oh, Lord, help you Lord, I mean, in this whole transformation of Saul project, but I'm kind of short on time and money's tight, and if you could get somebody else to to visit him or wait until a better time for me, that would be great. You know, when the Lord tells you to jump, your only question should be how high. How would the history of the world have been different if Paul had not been converted? One of the things that made Ananias a good disciple was that once he knew God's will, he simply did it. That brings us to our last point, the meeting. This is verses 17 to 19. Now, a lot of the meetings that you attend probably at your job are not actually that important, are they? You leave thinking, what a waste of time. Other meetings have great historical significance. 36 B.C., the meeting of the Roman Senate, where they declared Julius Caesar enemy of the state. This led to a civil war between the forces of Caesar and Pompey. What happened? Caesar came out on top and declared himself dictator for life. 1910, secret meeting at Jekyll Island, where a number of bankers under the leadership of Paul Warburg came together to plan the creation of a national bank. The Federal Reserve is run by a group of unelected people who control our entire monetary system. And by the way, just this month, they put into place the Fed's digital currency. Their goal is to have everybody use the digital currency so that nobody will be able to buy or sell without it. You wouldn't believe the number of people I read on comments below those articles who say things like, I'm not a Christian, but doesn't the Bible say something about this somewhere? 1945, the Yalta Conference, where Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill decided on the post-war divide-up of Europe. The steel curtain fell on Eastern Europe enslaving their citizens under communism for the next 45 years. 1957, the Treaty of Rome, which led to uh, the beginning of the economic union of six European nations, which has since grown to 27, the European Union. Now, I would have to say, in my opinion, all of those pale significance compared to that meeting that took place at Judas' house in Damascus, where Ananias met Saul. We read in verse 7, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul. Oh, man. Well, this this guy was the enemy of the church, the chief persecutor. Three days before this, he belonged to Satan. But now, Paul belongs to Christ, and therefore, he and Ananias are brothers, as are all Christians. Christ's followers are the family of God. We're all in the family. Whatever our nationality, ethnicity, skin color, station in life, old, young, rich, poor, there's one body and one spirit to which you are called in one hope of what you're calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all, through all, and in all, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. And it says, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. Now Luke, the author of this book, was a medical doctor. So he was fascinated by this little tidbit of some weird scale-like things falling off of Saul's eyes. And how ironic. Because before this encounter with the risen Christ, he had physical sight, but he was spiritually blind. After he encountered Christ, he lost his physical sight, but he began to see the truth. Now after this healing, he would have both his physical and his spiritual sight Paul certainly would have appreciated the words of the song written by John Newton, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's what every person needs to be saved. They need to God to open their eyes to see Jesus Christ as the answer to all their problems. That he alone can remove your guilt and forgive your sins through his death on the cross. Has God done that for you? Has he opened your eyes to see Christ as the beauty and treasure that he offers? A treasure worth giving everything up for to obtain? If not, you might have 20-20 vision, but spiritually you still have scales on your eyes. Pray that God would grant you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe so that you might receive the gift of eternal life. Now Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul was an amazing man and he had a profound impact on the course of history and he would have been, of course, the first to tell you that it was all by the grace of God. Now, none of us, quite honestly, is going to have the impact that the Apostle Paul did. His role in salvation history was unique and special, never to be repeated. He was one of the stars of the New Testament. But you know, each of us can play a role like Ananias, going where God sends us, doing what God tells us, and perhaps we might be instrumental in leading a person to faith who does have a profound impact. Listen to the following story related on the beloved Love website. It says this: Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the man I mentioned earlier, was confined to a Soviet prison camp in Kazakhstan. While there, he became ill and sent to the camp was sent to the camp infirmary, where he encountered a fellow prisoner, Dr. Boris Kornfeld. Solzhenitsyn in his gulag archipelago described the interaction. He said this, Following an operation, I'm lying on a surgical ward of a camp hospital. I cannot move. I'm hot and feverish. But nevertheless, my thoughts do not dissolve into delirium. And I'm grateful to Dr. Boris Karfel, who's sitting beside me on my cot, talking to me all evening. The light's been turned out so it doesn't hurt my eyes, and there's no one else in the ward. Fervently, he tells me, the long story of his conversion from Judaism to Christianity, and I'm astonished at the conviction of this new convert and the uh, uh, ardor of his words. We know each, uh, each other very slightly, and he's not the one responsible for my treatment, but he was simply no one else for him to talk to, to share his feelings. And listen what he says. I wake in the morning by the running and trampling in the corridor. The orderlies were carrying Kornfeld's body to the operating table. He had been dealt eight blows on the skull with a plasterer's mallet while he slept. He died on the operating table without regaining consciousness. And so it happened that Kornfeld's prophetic words were his last words on earth. And those words lay upon me like an inheritance. I cannot shake off that kind of inheritance by shrugging my shoulders. Because of Kornfeld's words, Solzhenitsyn, became a believer. He survived the prison camps, went on to be a gifted writer and one of the most influential believers in Russia in his day, speaking out boldly against the Soviet Union and communism and the Russian prison system. In 1970, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. One conversation in one evening, right before he died, changed the trajectory of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's life. Paul said it this way. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due season we will reap, listen to the next line, if we don't become weary. It wasn't until Dr. Cornfield got to heaven that he could see the difference his life had made. And folks, it's going to be the same for us. I mean, we cannot be a star like Paul, but we can play small but vital parts like Ananias, doing things like inviting kids to vacation Bible school this week picking up kids to bring to Sunday school, teaching, serving, praying, witnessing. No one else may notice, but Jesus does. And on Judgment Day, when he runs the credits to show who did what part in his grand production of salvation, then he's going to hand out his rewards. And he told us that even a cup of cold water given to someone because they're one of his disciples would be rewarded on that day. What I'm saying is this, may we serve him zealously so that Christ might be glorified and we might be glad because Jesus said, whoever serves me, my father will honor him. And folks, that's better than five Academy Awards because his is the only approval that matters. May God give us the grace to use the time we have to serve him diligently. Let's pray. Our Father and God, it is little things that we're called to be faithful in. Getting our kids to Sunday school and church, praying for them, reading them Bible stories, trying to be a witness at our work, praying for people, supporting our missionaries. All these things that we do, Lord, we are called to do to honor your Son, but also to bring ourselves joy. Because Jesus told us that if we lose our life for his sake, we'd gain it back again. So Father God, we do ask for grace and mercy. Give us opportunities to share and to uh, serve and help us to have hearts to take them when they're provided. Bless us and bless our effort and bring fruit that we might rejoice in Jesus Christ and all he does. So we ask in his name again, amen.